who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hi, Keegan. Hey, Madigan. Happy Sunday to you. Happy Sunday. Keegan's looking gorgeous. She had a virtual baby shower that she was going to, or was it like a drop-by baby shower? What was it? No, it was a virtual baby shower for Anthony's cousin back in Ohio. So she's due in September. It was great. It was fun. It was nice to see everybody. Anthony popped in with all the ladies. So (laughs) that's so much fun. And you look fantastic. And I was just telling her I slept in. I had nightmares. I was like drenched in sweat when I woke up. I haven't showered yet. I just feel the opposite of what Keegan looks. So it's a great paradox going on right now. Well, luckily, at least it's a Sunday. So hopefully you can like chill, take it easy, you know, take a nap later. I know Sundays are just like my only days that like Max and I can get all of our errands done. So it's like we just want to get those done as fast as possible so we can get home and just relax. Yeah, Yeah. I think we're going to spend the day by the pool. Anthony wanted to go to the beach and just like walk in the ocean since we haven't done that at all this year. Right. I don't think we're going to do that today. I think we're going to just kick it. Close to home by the beach or by the pool. Yeah, good idea. Well, we should get into this episode right away because this is a almost two hour long documentary that we're covering and we want to get this to you within an hour. So we have our work cut out for us because there's definitely a lot to discuss. So if you saw the title of the episode that you're listening to, we are going to be covering the documentary Disclosure that came out on Netflix. Uh, just a few months ago I believe it came out shortly after its premiere at Sundance just like a few months later Uh, I want to say that I didn't hear anything about this until like a month ago maybe yeah I watched it the first time probably about a month ago I want to say for some reason maybe it was June 
because like J months are popping up in my head. So it must have been June or something that it came out. So uh, I watched it for a second time to take my notes. And I've got to say, loved it even more the second time. It was amazing. I watched it last night. Amazing. I highly recommend it. And yeah, this documentary feels like it was catered to us, to like me and Keegan, because as two people that went to film school and learned, you know, especially we're going to talk about D.W. Griffith a little bit later on and about, you know, film history, because it really is, this is a a film about trans representation in media, television, film, so on. So it had kind of this like educational activist uh, heart to it. But then it also was this kind of like secondary history of filmmaking, which really piqued my interest. And that's why I enjoyed watching it two times so much. I got so much out of it both times. Yeah, it's really incredible. And so I highly recommend going and watching it. And so we are going to cover the documentary today, but I want to try and be a little cognizant of not ruining it for anyone <laughs> um, who maybe hasn't seen it yet. Uh, but we do want to just kind of give you some highlights, tell you our thoughts, about some of the things that happened in the documentary and some of the things that were covered. We are not ever going to be able to do it as well as they did it. No, Um, definitely not. Well, I think for us, see, I love when we recap documentaries because I think that even if we do give a lot of the information and give away part of the story, there's something that, the reason I love listening to recap podcasts is because then it makes me want to go watch the whole thing. So if you haven't seen the movie and there's things that we're discussing, because there's no way we're going to be able to get into all of this. This is a long movie and a short podcast. So if we've piqued your interest at all and you haven't seen the film, I hope this is at least like a a jumping ground for you to go and then watch the film and educate yourselves completely because we're not going to be able to give you the whole picture. We're not going to be able to give you the whole picture. And at the end of the day, it's not our story to tell. Like, I think every single person who was interviewed in the documentary, as far as I could tell, unless I'm missing something, every single person who was interviewed is trans. Uh, Yeah, it's either, you know, trans or non-binary or part of the queer community. Um, I do have a list of talking heads here, and I do want to give a big shout out to the director, who was Sam Feeder, who is trans-identifying. Laverne Cox was the executive producer. Of course, you know her from Orange is the New Black. And it was uh, also produced by Sam Feeder, which (laughs) auto-corrected to Sam Federico's on my iPad this morning, which is fun, and Amy Shoulder, and I couldn't find a whole lot of information about Amy individually of, you know, how she identifies, but she is an LGBTQ plus activist, and I'm going to give you a really, really quick rundown of Talking Heads, because there's so many of them, and it changes so quickly that we're probably not going to be able to tell you every single time who is saying what because they they change talking heads very frequently throughout the film so we have laverne cox bianca lee jen richards alexandra billings susan Stryker, who is a historian yance ford lily wachowski brian michael smith teak milan nick adams who is the glad director of transmedia and representation zeke smith rain valdez elliot fletcher marquis bilson jasmine leo shang trace lissette Alexandra Gray, the amazing Candace Kane, Jamie Clayton, Michael G. Cohen, who is also a writer and an acting coach. So I'm like, hey, uh, Mickey R. Mahoney. He is an educator and a filmmaker. Sir Answatigi. I hope I'm saying Answatigi. Hard last name to say. I'm sorry. Uh, Zachary Drucker, 
uh, who is a producer and writer, MJ Rodriguez, of course, from Pose, uh, the iconic Sandra Caldwell, Chaz Bono, Travel Anderson, Angelica Ross, and Chase Strangio, who is an attorney for ACLU. So those are the people who are being covered. And yes, all of these people are in the LGBTQ plus community who are being, um, you know, active roles behind the scenes and also on camera for this documentary. So you do get a sense that everybody uh, is working together toward the same goal and message throughout this film. Well, and a lot of it was first-hand experience. So most of these people have worked in the film, television, or other kind of media uh, realm in that realm. And so a lot of them were talking about their personal experiences as trans people existing in this realm. Um, And also alongside the history was their own personal experiences of having grown up trans. What I really saw and what really struck me about this film Um, and and really hit me hard was this idea that you could grow up and have no representation at all, to never have yourself reflected back at you, um, which is what we saw a lot with trans masculine experiences, or to have your experience mirrored back to you uh, largely as a joke, uh, being the butt yeah. of a joke. Being a joke or being uh, portrayed incredibly violently and negatively. Right. So there's there's a couple of things going on. And it was really interesting. I remember Jen Richards, especially. Uh, oh, she, her interviews were just incredible. so poignant. She's I- insanely articulate and eloquent. Oh, yeah. Insanely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing that she said was, you know, on the one hand, we had all of these very negative representation that we were growing up with. However, at the same time, would it have been better not to have any representation at all? Because I don't know if I would have figured myself out as quickly without the representation. Exactly. And that's two sided. Yeah. And that's kind of this, that's the basis of the discussion of this film. The film opens with a quote of somebody saying, do you know that feeling when you're sitting in a movie theater and everyone's laughing at something and you just don't get it? And it kind of goes into, you know, how people could be seeing people who are obviously making fun of the trans experience, but having that be your only sense of finding yourself in TV. So we first see Laverne Cox in the beginning of this film. She's the first person to kind of tell a bit of her story. And she talks about, uh, you know, especially you know, men in drag on television, uh, forming her opinion of trans people. She talks about seeing Geraldine from the Flip Wilson show and her mother laughing at this, you know, cross-dressing male character and, you know, watching the Jeffersons of, you know, the character Edie, who used to be Eddie. And, you know, it starts out as being something kind of positive and she's seeing a beautiful woman on on screen and then in that episode of the Jeffersons you know he he I guess dresses up another male friend as a woman to kind of convince his wife that he's not cheating so even through all of that you know she's finding these positive images of this beautiful trans woman and then at the end of the episode she's still being made into a butt of a joke Right. Yeah. I feel like what we saw very often was the trans experience, even if, you know, maybe they were trying to do something positive with that Edie character in the beginning, undercutting it for the comfort of cis 
audiences is really what I was seeing there um, because there was a lot of ugh, icky. You know what I mean? Like, oh, being trans is gross. Like very right. often I was I was struck so much by how often these movies that they were talking about um like Ace Ventura is one that that really like stands out to oh, me. Where I've never it, seen that movie, and I never will now. After I've seen that scene, it was it went on way too long, and it was very very hurtful. I saw it as an adult, um, a young adult. I was probably like twenty or twenty one the first time I actually watched Ace Ventura, and I remember feeling like it was dated then. You know what I mean? Because I remember feeling like this is not something at all that we would allow to happen now. And I, it was such I mean, a huge movie. And I honestly, can't imagine growing up seeing that and everybody laughing at it and everybody quoting it because that's what was happening in the oh, 90s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and knowing that, okay, you're getting the messaging that who you are is unacceptable or it's disgusting really because that movie ends with them all throwing up when they, when they discover that um, the villain in the movie is trans. Yes. And honestly, you know, you mentioned that this wouldn't slide today. I remember watching family guy and maybe in my head, this was longer ago than I think it is because my concept of time and how old I am means nothing to me. Uh, I, I wish I could tell this story now, but it's too long to tell for this episode. But I got asked what it was like to grow up through all of the 2000s while the world was ending yesterday, and I've never felt older. Um, anyways, but I remember seeing, you know, they were showing kind of a slideshow toward the end of the movie of all of these like very like vomiting, ill, violent reactions when a trans person is kind of like outed in a movie or TV show. And I remember a family guy scene like not that long ago. They had a trans storyline maybe like five years ago and there was like violent violent vomiting when I believe Quagmire realized that he had slept with a trans person or something like this is something that people will still slip in because these audiences don't understand the harm and I remember even when I you know watched Family Guy in the past I can't watch it anymore because those things didn't bother me as much and now that I'm as more educated right it's I, I harder to watch that that was longer than five years ago because I know yeah. exactly what episode you're talking about but in general I mean Family Guy that's the whole shtick, I guess, is yeah. kind of like, we don't give a fuck and we're going to do this irreverent humor regardless of who it's impacting or who it's hurting. Exactly. Um, which is what makes it difficult to watch it now, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I want to talk, I want to go, because they start talking about uh, just film history right now, which I... I'm obsessed with. And we start talking about how some of the earliest moving images were actually of cross-dressing people. Uh, The first image that we see in the movie is a clip from Old Maid having her picture taken in 1901. And it really makes womanhood look very silly. And right off the bat, they talk about D.W. Griffith. And I'm like, okay, are we going to mention the fact that this guy is like the most racist, homophobic person in the world? Let's go. So at first they're talking about, he did this film called Judith of Bethulia. And it's about a Jewish woman in Jerusalem. uh, An invading army is coming. And Judith, to save the city, pretends to be a concubine to Holofernes, uh, the general. And while she's in his tent, she takes a 
a sword and cuts his head off. And now this is a really impactful moment in film history because it was the first time that there was a cut, like there was an edit to further the plot of the movie. So this is something that is taught in film schools. Did you learn about D.W. Griffith in, in school? Uh, Birth of a Nation was covered in school for me, but this one was not. This one wasn't either, and Birth of a Nation was as well. So, like I said, during this whole section, I was kind of like, all right, are we going to mention, because they're like, hey, it was the first, like, this is this great film moment in history where, you know, it was the first time a cut was made to further the plot of the story. And I was like, are we going to talk about the rest of this guy's, like, awful ass? So... We see, I, I, it moved too fast with these talking heads, but we see somebody come on talking about the fact that discussing D.W. Griffith in film school is disgusting. Um, and he says that, you know, if he were to have been assigned Birth of a Nation, he would have walked out of that film school right away. And that made me think of the school that we went to because mm-hmm. I had to watch it for class, which made me assume that you had to watch it for class. Mm-hmm. And I, it was very hard for me to watch then I'm sure it would be even harder for me to watch now and D.W. Griffith had this uh, trend of mixing both blackface and cross-dressing to portray uh, villains in his movies right Uh, yeah I mean and especially with blackface it was always black people were always depicted as animalistic and violent. Um, what I would say about covering D.W. Griffith in school, what I would say about that is it's all about the way the information is presented. Exactly. Right? Because when you're studying film, I mean, learning about the history of film, no matter how ugly the subject I think it is important to cover it. However, I think you have to have a teacher who's willing to tell the truth about the situation and not exactly. glorify this person just because they made some strides within the film world. You right. know what I mean? And I, I believe that my teacher did a good job of presenting the information in a way that wasn't glorifying this person or the film itself birth of a nation for me we can cut this up but who who was your teacher i don't remember mine's name but i can remember what he looked like i I can't remember who which class i was in for that but i do remember not feeling like he 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 openly discussed the fact that this was a racist movie yeah uh, and a racist depiction of um black people and but I do think it's important to talk about the history of blackface where it came from and why it's offensive yeah and and oh, you can't yeah. do that without covering what it was used for you know exactly I mean? that's the thing is that we can't not tell these stories because they're they're historical it's part of our history and that's how we are supposed to learn from it so while I understand where he's like I would have walked out because this was a black man who was saying this as well mm-hmm. I completely respect whatever Absolutely. any person decides to do but for me I didn't know when I went into film school, I had never heard of Birth of a Nation. I had never heard of D.W. Griffith. And that was, again, another piece of information that spurred me to want to learn more on the activist side of things. Like, why did this happen? And more things like that. And I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately where this asshole is brought up. So when I watched this again yesterday, I was like, all right, here we go. Let's talk about D.W. Griffith again. All right. Uh, Well, then we kind of move on into this discussion of black female comedians doing drag as this Mm -hmm. sort of 
rite of passage mm-hmm. and they talk about the history of, you know, black men in America painted with this hyper masculinity and how that is seen as predatory to white womanhood. And it goes back all the way to slavery and Jim Crow era where black men would be emasculated by being lynched and then often having their genitals cut off. And well, it's, and kind it's of, actually darker than that. I, I yeah. don't know if we want to get into all of that stuff, but um, there, trigger warning, uh, there okay. was a thing that happened during slave times called buck breaking. So this would be a thing where they would take what they deemed to be the alpha male, um, the most masculine black man, um, one of the enslaved people that they had, uh, and rape him in front of the other slaves uh, as a way of of emasculating him uh, in front of others. And so this whole history of black straight, cis, you know, heterosexual black men in drag, uh, it's, it is depicted as a way to take something that we have decided is scary, which is black male bodies. And again, this goes back to Birth of a Nation. It's why it's important to have these conversations because exactly. in Birth of a Nation, um, the man who was in blackface was de- Picked it as a very aggressive, animalistic, um, scary person who was there to rape the white protagonist. So we have found a way to make them less scary, quote unquote, by putting them in drag, by by turning them into a caricature and a joke. But right. then when you do that, what you're saying, you're sending these messages that trans women are a joke. You're making it more difficult for black trans women, especially to exist. Laverne Cox talks about the number of times that she would walk onto a subway and people would start laughing because her existence was a joke. Right. That's well, what we'd been seeing in the and media. That's, and that's the thing is that when she started discussing that story, that immediately made me think of how important it is for a trans identifying person to pass. And I'm sure all of you know what passing is, but if you don't, it means that you pass as whatever gender that you are now identifying as. So if you're a trans woman, you are expected to look, you know, more womanly than any other woman. Right. Hyper feminine. Yeah, whatever exactly. that means. Because exactly. Women, as we know, meet, they look all kinds of ways. They, they look. look- all kinds of ways. But so that that put an emphasis to me on passing. And it also perpetuates this idea that trans women are simply just men in women's clothing. That's the yes. other thing, you know, and there's a scene that they show where Jamie Foxx is kind of talking to his like protege. He's like playing himself, I believe, in some film. And it's white famous. White it's a fam- TV show. Thank mm-hmm. you. And he was saying to this protege, you know, like we have to do this to make like if you want to make it into the mainstream if you want white people to love you and come to your shows then you have to you have to put this dress on and then you know as soon as he puts the dress on he loses his penis and it's just like and these images are really disparaging to all women and it shows how hard it is for actual trans people to live their lives you know what i mean it's it's disparaging to women to see womanhood being made fun of and it's especially disparaging to trans women seeing their identities being uh again seen as less real and more fictitious right and it was interesting to me to hear them discuss passing because obviously the more you 
look like or you look like what society deems your gender to look like, move through the world looking like a hyper-feminine person, then it does make you safer in one regard because it's harder for people to quote-unquote tell what you are, right? Um, So in one way, it makes it easier to exist, but they also discussed that in another way, it can make it more dangerous for you because you, as we know, existing as cis women in the world, the more societally attractive you are, the more attention you are going to be getting from um, men, typically. And that can oftentimes put trans women in a very dangerous situation. Uh, They didn't talk too, too much about trans panic outside of, you know, the, the films that really depicted that, like Boys Don't Cry. But it does, it's this kind of two sided situation where in one way it can make you safer just moving through the world but on the other hand it can make interactions um romantic interactions more dangerous for you oh definitely and and that's the thing is that in order to move through the world that is so stuck in a binary that's what you know non-binary representation is so important because we are not they aren't fitting into any sort of mold of what we believe gender binary is. And that's scary to people and that makes them dangerous as well. You know what I mean? It's just there's so much at stake with the representation of the transgender community in our media. They talk about Alfred Hitchcock films. I love Laverne. She's like, what's going on, Alfred? From the grave, talk to us. You know, he kind of <laughs> had this- He was very fixated. He was super fixated on that, which I'm kind of like, all right, like what? what's your deal, man? Like, let's talk about this phobia. Uh, yeah, he was fixated on portraying um, men in drag, because I don't even want to say trans people. It's no. men in drag, typically yeah. men in dresses, men who have a desire to wear dresses for and whatever reason. Well, as and being- it's typically derived from some sort of mental illness. Like if we look at Psycho, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's derived from him having this mental illness. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and he he depicts them as being mentally ill, which yeah. is another thing that we see time and time again in the media uh, as far as trans representation goes but it it is an interesting thing he was very preoccupied with with that and yeah he had he had multiple examples the ones that they showed were psycho the alfred hitchcock hour there were two episodes from that they showed and another film called murder exclamation point Uh, And then after that, they went on to Silence of the Lambs. And one of the talking heads that I loved so much, Bianca, talks about how much she loves Silence of the Lambs. She's like, I know it's problematic. Um, And then there's this moment where Jodie Foster says, there's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence, which is like, awesome, girl, keep going. Tell me more. And then she goes on to say, transsexuals are very passive. And... It's like, why can't you say we're not psychopathic murderers, Jody? Like, you know, that's it. You don't have to call us passive. Right. We're not passive. All you can say is, hey, just because this person, you know, identifies as a woman and was born biologically male, that doesn't automatically mean that he's a killer. But in this case, he was a sadistic killer and really perpetuated this idea that so many... And, and they bring... They bring the word feminism into this, which is so poignant to me to see how how far we have to go to 
distance ourselves from turfs because they talk about, you know, especially with Buffalo Bill in that movie, this idea of appropriating the female form. And they were like, well, that's the feminist argument. And that just broke my heart because I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to be associated with a community that thinks that this is a performative actor that they are appropriating. Well, we're we're not because those are turfs, which we've talked about many times, trans trans exclusionary radical feminists. Um, And then also in addition to that, there are white feminists. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more moving forward. But to go back to what you said um, about Jodie Foster's line in that movie, where she says there is no correlation between trans, sexualism and violence and then goes on to say um, that transsexuals are very passive and I, I feel like there is often this idea that people who live in the dominant culture um, tend to have whether that is you know white people talking about black people or cishet people talking about trans people where we tend to look at a group of people as a monolith Right. Where that's not exactly how it works. It's not how it works at all. So you can be trans and be any number of things. You're not automatically passive because you're trans. You can be an assertive person. Um, It has nothing to do with your um, sexual identity. It, it, It doesn't or your gender identity rather. And so that's kind of the the thing that I was thinking whenever (laughs) whoever it was, Bianca, said, why can't you just say that we're not psychopathic murderers? Because it's like, well, maybe there are trans people who are psychopathic murderers because there are trans people who are anything. That's yeah. kind of the point. They're everywhere and they're all different kinds of people. They're not a, a monolith right. that are all one way or another. Exactly. And that's why these harmful depictions of them being these you know, mentally ill problem to society violent people is just so upsetting you know they start to go on to talk about max on the l word which i never watched the l word so i don't really i didn't either i don't really have an experience with this character of the show but you know they talk about how you know these talking heads were saying how great it was to see a trans masculine experience play out on a on a show that was about lesbians and you know it was such a prominent television show in the community And it started out being very positive. And we see Elliot Fletcher is one of our talking heads who I've had a crush on for years. He was on Shameless and he's adorable. Uh, He says that he was really frustrated watching Max's storyline on the L word because it's like as soon as he starts taking testosterone, he becomes this like violent can't be tamed, just straight up asshole. Like he goes through this whole storyline where you end up really hating Max at the end instead of rooting for them. And it kind of shows this like, it also shows the tension in the community of like the lesbian community and the trans masculine community being tied together and kind of some of the struggles within that as well. Right. At one point in the L word, one of the characters says, you know, you can dress like this, you can act like this, you can be a butch lesbian, but why do you have to change your body? Uh, And I believe that, you know, I don't know, I can't speak for within the lesbian community, but I would say that even on a broader scale, a lot of people within feminist circles would would think the same way. Yeah. That there is this idea of radical acceptance of... um, Womanhood. Womanhood, yeah, yeah, right? Which is 
serves its purpose in a lot of ways and can be a really great thing. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it is exclusionary towards um, trans people. And Max on the show says, because I want, I'm I'm doing this because I want my outsides to match my insides. And it really does, it, it does depict it in this way that's like, they owe us an explanation uh, right. for for why they are doing X, Y, Z, uh, which trans people don't owe you anything. They don't owe you anything. We should stop poking them and prodding them and asking them to explain their existence to us over and over again. Right. Whatever they say they are is what they are. Exactly. And that, you know, this jumps quite ahead forward in the documentary, but I think it, this next conversation kind of flows in really well talking about the obsession with surgery with transgender Mm, people mm -hmm. and you know seeing a lot of interviews with different daytime and nighttime talk show hosts asking about you know what do you do with the penis and just completely inappropriate questions that you would never ask another human being and then especially you know once we've discovered that someone has had you know, their their gender reassignment surgery, then we have this fascination about the surgery. And, you know, one or of the... we're looking for the cracks. I feel like that's often the case, too, where once we know, then we're looking for... Um, Cues. Uh, are they masculine? You know, like, yeah. we're, we're so preoccupied with birth, gender, uh, and what's between someone's legs. That's what really struck me about that whole section of the documentary, where it's I'm true. like... It's really weird, the yeah. way that we care so much about what's going on underneath someone's clothes right. is, and they, is so strange. And they show this trope of, you know, the trans reveal in movies too. Like I believe one of them was M. Butterfly where, you know, there's a, it's, it's very graphic. Like you just, you see a penis and then you see a man reacting horribly to this it was a crying woman game. that he, was that the crying game? Mm-hmm. Was there was something in M. Butterfly, too, wasn't there? I don't remember, but okay. I do know that the one is the crying game is the where crying she's game. standing in front of him and basically he is at head level yeah. um, and a penis is revealed and his reaction is so aggressive. Oh, it's um, so aggressive and scary and violent. And it's like it, it shows... It shows that, like, why do why do the, these trans characters have to have these embellished reveals? It also shows lots of scenes of women, you know, ripping their shirts off and exposing their tits. Yeah. And, so let's let's you know, talk about that for a second. Let's so do it. There was a whole section. So a lot of this um, documentary was talking about trans feminine people and that's only because and they discuss it within the documentary that the representation for trans feminine on screen um, has just existed for so much longer and it is represented so much more negatively or not however there is a string of movies uh, in which you know trans masculine people were discussing having seen themselves in in these in these situations um and you know they're like just one of the guys i think was one of them and yentl and all of these movies end with them kind of <laughs> exposing their breasts in right. order to to show them that they are a woman right um, but these are not trans individuals these are women who are dressing up as men to 
seek out some kind of goal, basically. Um, And one of them said, one of the people who was interviewed said that it is a woman's empowerment message in a trans-masculine package. Yeah. So it it is this kind of thing that is, it's not meant to serve the trans-masculine community. It's meant to serve as a woman's empowerment message to cis women. Women. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Um, So it was was kind of an interesting thing that I had never thought about it in those terms. I hadn't either because that trope goes as far back to Shakespeare and the Twelfth Night. You know what I mean? And these think of all the movies that built off of that Shakespeare play. You know, we have She's the Man with Amanda Bynes and we, you know, had all the other these other movies that they were discussing uh, in this documentary and it's true I grew up watching those movies in a way that one I think I took away that in order for me to get by in this world I must be more masculine than I am feminine and I think that that played into my because I was already a tomboy and I think that played into my tomboyness when I was very young in a big way and it also showed me that once I'm discovered for being a woman that I may not get the same opportunities I didn't look at those movies in a way where it is denying the trans masculine experience and so I think it's important for us to look back on those movies that we watched when we were younger and the art that we've consumed and look at it through another lens right I I think that those movies can exist but it's like they said many times in the documentary if that is the only representation that exists which it seems like you know, for trans masculine people, there's so little actual representation that any representation matters. And the fact that that is all they had and it wasn't for them, it was for us. It wasn't for them. Um, that's really tough. And then on the other side of that, the other representation that they're getting is violent incredibly violent so we can talk about boys don't cry if we're talking about trans masculine representation which is an incredibly important film Um, yeah i i would say you know when you're in a good headspace go watch it it is it is so good and it is important yeah however for you're not seeing stories of joy you're not seeing you're seeing stories of struggle or stories that aren't meant for you and right. that is it and, and, they, and I can't imagine not being able to see myself depicted in any real way at right. all well, growing and it, up and it really you know the, these people who are being interviewed discuss how that movie in particular really made them feel scared like oh my god if mm-hmm. I choose this life I'm mm-hmm. going to die and that is such a scary message to be sending when you're not sending any positive messages out there and they they mentioned at yes. some point in the film where they're like if there was more representation then the occasional clumsy slip up or the tragic story wouldn't be so harmful but the yeah, thing is, is that said that yeah mm-hmm. and and you know, I believe it was uh, his name. First name was Nick, and he works for Glad. And he was saying that you know only eighty percent of Americans know somebody who is transgender. So if they cannot, eighty percent of people do not. Do, what did I say? Do yeah. Oh, do 80% not. Of I'm sorry. Yes, do not know anyone who is transgender in real life. Exactly. So all of their uh, all of their beliefs that they are uh, you know starting to ingrain from these movies are going to be very very negative ones, very very tragic ones, and it perpetuates this violence to see, mm-hmm. you know, to dehumanize 
the transgender community, you know, they might not have access to the character on TV, but they might have access to running across right. a transgender person mm-hmm. in real life. And that's what's and, horrifying. And it was also, it struck me as well. Again, I, it, it's kind of sad that I never thought about these things. I should be thinking about these things more often, um, especially as somebody who's part of a marginalized community. But they also said, or I think Nick also said, most of Americans don't know a trans person in real life. Most trans people don't know another trans person in real life. So when they're trying to figure out who they are, a lot of times the only way that they have to figure this information out, especially before there was the internet, we had access to the internet and things like that, was through the media, was through what they saw on TV or in movies. Um, So imagine that. Like, imagine having, you know, growing up is confusing and difficult enough. And then believing that you are in the wrong body on top of that, not knowing anybody who has an experience like you, and then not seeing yourself represented in a positive way where you're not the butt of a joke or experiencing some form of violence. Exactly. Um, I, I can't even imagine what that must be like. Right. There was something else about Boys Don't Cry that, again, another movie that I haven't seen. I haven't seen most movies, which is really upsetting. But there was actually a black character. There was his black buddy named Philip Devine. And he Mm -hmm. was also there with Brandon Tina. And he was also killed. And his character was completely removed from the story. And there was another interviewee who was talking about, you know, he was a black, queer, trans-identifying person. And he was saying, you're showing me now that there's no room for my black queerness. You know, there's no room for me in your story and there's no room for me in life because he also lost his life and it's not being commemorated, you know? Mm -hmm. So at this point in the movie, they talk about the movie Stonewall and I've never seen it because what a fucking mess. Mm -hmm. It shows a gay white man throwing the first brick. I did not watch it on purpose because I know that the trans community, that uh, a lot of members of the LGBT community, especially people of color, were upset oh, with yeah. the way that that was depicted and so I was like mm, I'll yeah. wait for someone else to tell this story right I was like fuck that business I'm not doing it so it go and then we kind of flash back to what Stonewall was really like and you know we've mentioned this a lot on the show and we've done a Stonewall re- episode recently we've done an episode discussing Sylvia Rivera and, and Marsha ta- P. Johnson and Marsha P. Johnson and, and they talk about Sylvia and Marsha and there's a clip of Sylvia's so famous speech talking about how she's given up her life for gay rights and how she is being pushed out of her own movement right I mean we talked about um, in our Stonewall episode they didn't mention it too too much in disclosure but um you know there was a thing called the medicine society which was a one of the first like gay groups um in in the united states that was like pushing for gay rights but the way that they went about it was basically to show straight people we're just like you okay so they tried to be as straight laced as possible they they didn't want to rock you know, the boat or ruffle any feathers. And because of that, they really tried to push out members of the trans community, especially people who were loud and colorful, like Sylvia and Marsha, because they thought that it discredited their movement, what they were trying to do. Yeah. And so there was a lot of anti-trans sentiment, even within 
gay circles, you know, within the, the gay movement in the beginning. Exactly. Um, even though it, <laughs> it was really trans people, uh, in particular trans women and trans women of color who... Uh, really pushed the movement forward and did a lot of the boots on the ground work. Yeah, they, like the they hard did. Work. They did the legwork and they, I would say, probably had the most violent responses mm-hmm. just from the stories mm-hmm. we've covered. Their and the bodies other stories were on the line. Read. Exactly. Yeah. There was so much on the line. I mean, I just talked about Stormy DeLavery recently as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many um, people where their gender identity made them such a topic for... Uh, hatred and violence and then so kind of before Stonewall there was a woman named Christine Jorgensen and she became a global media celebrity in 1952 I had never heard of Christine Jorgensen and I'm excited to know more she was the first person to kind of become like globally famous for her her gender reassignment surgery and her image had become this stand this standpoint for trans women in further generations you know she kind of embodied this very classic, glamorous, glamorous old mm-hmm. Hollywood look that, you know, now we see on, you know, the Kardashians and, you know, it's kind of this elevated hyper feminine look, but that's really where this idea of femininity in the uh, trans female community came from. And she was the first person who started really changing the conversations that we have surrounding trans people. And she was very, very vocal. I mean, she's on a late night talk show that looks like it was probably from like the 60s or the 70s. I think it was the 80s. You think it was the I 80s? Were, yeah, the early 80s. I'm pretty sure. I didn't write down every single show that popped up because I already spent so many hours taking notes on this. I'm like, I ain't doing that. So yeah, I think it was. I think it was the Phil Donahue show in the 80s. Okay, let's go. But with, I could be wrong. Let's go with that. Um, so she's on this talk show, and he's asking her opinion on what magazines are calling, you know, this phantom penis syndrome. You know, having all of these, you know, effects after their gender reassignment surgery, like having trouble sexually, psychologically, trouble with urination, and he talks about surgery that was done with without proper counseling before. And that's when Christine kind of jumps in and she's like, well, there's your answer. You just said the word counseling. It's a demand gender identity clinics. People always refer to surgery. The surgery is sort of an anticlimax. It's done after all the other things. And I, and I love that that was something that was shown so early on television. And, you know, we, we go more and more into these daytime talk show hosts and nighttime talk show hosts giving these Um, trans people a platform, you know, where they had the potential to be laughed at, but were also able to get their story out and maybe get the general population to Mm -hmm. humanize them a little bit more. Right. Yeah. I mean, and with with Christine Jorgensen, with that interview, uh, I don't know if she said it or if somebody who was commenting on it said it, but they were talking about kind of like the dangers of surgery or you know <laughs> those kinds of things yeah you know not having proper, of testosterone and, right yeah. and not not having proper counseling or whatever and somebody commented about how this is life-saving for so many people right so we like to talk about the dangers of surgery uh, or things like that but actually a lot of trans people would rather risk the dangers um, associated, the medical dangers that are associated with surgery, because if they don't get it, that's when their lives are actually in danger because they're mentally 
having to grapple with living in the wrong body. Exactly. You know, and a body that doesn't match their insides. So we like to put this focus on their this concern trolling for their physical well-being without taking into account what's happening to them mentally every day that they're having to live in a body that's not for them. Yeah, know. exactly. Well, we are, we're getting close and closer and closer to an hour here. So let's keep going here. I do want to touch briefly on this trope of straight white male actors playing uh, trans women in movies. You know, they talk about Dallas Buyers Club, you know, in, in the real story, there was no Rayon character. They created this character just to kind of come in and facilitate the hero's journey. Oh, it's, and it's then, a mystical Negro trope. It's it is, the same thing. Yeah. We're going to talk about sometime soon the trope of the black best friend. It's yeah. the same thing. It's a character that exists uh, only to push the protagonist forward and help that character develop and grow. It, it's not at all about who that character is, even though it's displayed beautifully um, within the film. That character is really a tool to push the plot forward. Yeah. And they talked about, um, Jared Leto in particular, you know, showing up for the Oscars and he's, you know, he's got his long hair and he's got his beard and he's in this white tux, but it was kind of this, uh, image of, you know, we are okay with the trans identity when it is being portrayed through a white man. There is something more comforting in that. And we award it with Oscars a lot. There is right, a long knowing list. That they, they take it off at the end of the day and that they're actually, uh, not trans yes. and it somehow makes them it somehow makes them less intimidating right because they can leave set and they can uh, and they can be safe they can live their normal lives they don't have the same uh, risks you know they talk about Eddie Redmayne and how beautifully you know he portrayed the femininity of this real person but you know it was a disservice to only be showing you know, this femininity that, you know, this cis white man couldn't possibly understand the complexities of what this real person was going through. Mm -hmm. So while the performance was breathtaking and beautiful and you can tell that he took care and did his homework, it's just not the same as when, you know, I just finished watching all of Pose and it's my new favorite show on the planet. It's different than watching a show like Pose where you're you're, you feel like you're really learning something because you can see that these people, these actors have something behind them that is so important, this message that they are conveying and they're telling it in a true manner because that is their reality. They're not well, showing yeah. just one I mean, side. It's the reason why quote unquote minority representation is so important in the media. It's why it's important for black people to play black characters. Uh, you know, it's it's why it's important for, you know, stories about the Native American experience to be written by Native American people because there is an authenticity that exists um, because we exist in these bodies every day and we know what that experience is is like. And so something did break open, I feel like with the American psyche, with people like Laverne Cox becoming so famous or shows like Pose where we're seeing these characters depicted on screen and then we're seeing them on the red carpet or we're seeing them in magazines as themselves. It's not like Jared Leto where we see him 
on screen depicted one way and then you can kind of homophobic or transphobic people can kind of breathe a sigh of relief knowing that that's not who he is day in and day out. It makes them more comfortable to watch the movie mm -hmm. as well. And also, you know, discussing Jared Leto and Dallas Buyers Club also because of, you know, the trope of, you know, the Negro hero or in this case, the trans hero, you know, that facilitates the story. They are there for a specific person purpose it is not their story and it is also played by a man so that's probably why it played so well with the old white fucks at the academy you know yeah no you're absolutely right but yeah there's something about seeing people like Laverne Cox I'm going to keep using her as an example yeah um, just she's because a huge part of this movie <laughs> she's huge yeah I mean and I feel like for a lot of people that was kind of the first time that we saw a very normalized not exaggerated representation of what a trans person is yeah her existence it wasn't a caricature um it wasn't this overly exaggerated kind of example of femininity it was just a person who exists in the world right and to see her in interviews or on the red carpet continuing to just exist that way um i think it really brought home to a lot of people it's sad that it took that but i think it really did bring home to a lot of people that these are people. Yeah. They're just people. They're like, they're like anybody else, you know? Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of close up a lot of this documentary with somebody said, we cannot be what we cannot see. I cannot be in the world until I see that I am in the world. And I think that that is the most important thing because they talk about, you know, especially they get into pose at the end, which I just mentioned. They talk about the creators, the writers' rooms, and they even talk about Ryan Murphy, who, you know, they discuss Candace Kane's character on Nip Tuck. That was a Ryan Murphy show, like in the early 2000s. And oh, now that show is a mess. It's a mess. Wow. It's a mess, and it's so problematic. I mean, her first entrance. On, as a character on the money, or maybe this was Dirty Sexy Money. On Dirty Sexy Money, they lowered, lowered her, voice. her voice. Yeah, but you know, Nip Tuck was incredibly problematic for many characters and Candace's character as well. And now we have Ryan Murphy producing a show like Pose, and it shows that, you know, and he is a gay white man. It shows that through the years, his education has evolved and grown. And now Pose is mostly run by. Right. The trans and that's, community and the queer That's community. what I was going to say is that he brought in as a as a gay white man, he brought in trans people of color to help do the writing. He brought them into the writers room because that's again, you cannot write about an experience that you have no knowledge of. Right. You have to bring in people and they had, who existed in those circles. Right. And not even just writers. It was creators. It was directors. It was actors. It was makeup artists, crew members, costume designers. I watched a bunch of the behind the scenes uh, clips that they had of Pose that show all of this and uh, discuss you know, the community behind all of it. That was kind of the theme of this video series. And it was really, really amazing to see that the reason that show is so great, and if you haven't watched it, go binge it on Netflix. My gosh, it's amazing. There's a reason. And it's beautiful as well. It it's is. visually stunning. Stunning. And there's a reason that this show is so good, and that is because it is showing a true, honest, full-pictured look of the 
ballroom community in the late 1980s, early 1990s in a way that is not discussed very often. You know, before Pose, our reference was like Paris is Burning. And Paris Mm -hmm. is Burning is problematic because the filmmaker didn't do shit for any of those girls that she, you know, lifted up during this film. I mean, Paris is Burning is important. It's so Um, important, I do think it it opened... I would would also recommend watching it because it did open the eyes of the modern day mainstream American. Yeah. The director um, was just problematic. Um, Yes. But the director did not, I mean, you're, you're out there kind of like watching these people struggle. And then as soon as the movie's out, you're like, okay, deuces. Bye. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. There was another movie that came out later. Oh, that I have in my, in my like to rent. Thing on Amazon Prime, I can't remember what it's called, but it was basically a response to Paris is Burning, and oh yes, yes, um, mm-hmm. showing the models, you know, res- the models showing the women responding to everything that was said in the movie, and you know, continuing their story and things like that. So, it's, if you're going to support Paris is Burning, it's good to support the other film too. Yeah, can't remember agree. it right now. I'll look it up and promote it somehow. Um, yeah, and that was kind of you know uh, the point of this film was to, you know, how can we learn from the years and years and years of trauma through negative representation? What can we do to uh, create better lives for the real trans community, the real stories through media and television, especially for people, for young trans kids who don't have any other outlet or any other advice from those around them? How can we make sure that the trans community is being accepted in media moving forward? Right. Yeah. And I'd I'd like to say that a way that I think that maybe we can start doing that, and I think that they address this in the documentary, is to show trans people as fully formed people who not only experience difficulties, but are also experiencing joy. Yeah. You know, I think we need to see that. I, I feel like it's said very often in the black community, you know, we need to show depictions of black love and black yeah. joy and not just these depictions of violence and um, discrimination while those stories are so important right. and need to be told. Yeah. We need to see the other half of it as well yeah, I mean, to show that these are human beings. I, I have a whole range of experiences and emotions. And I think that's true for so many groups of people because that's a big thing for me with mental health movies like Girl Interrupted Mm -hmm. and To the Bone and because to me Mm -hmm. it's perpetuating this sick story instead of showing because to me my fascinating story is not when I was sick. I was boring as fuck when I was sick. The story that you want to hear about my life is a story of how I got better. And that's what I would rather see on TV is a story of how somebody who felt completely lost, who wanted their lives to end, who felt like they had nothing else to live for, because that touches into so many different groups. I don't want to see them living in their most difficult times all the time. I want to see how they pulled themselves out of it because that's what's going to inspire Mm -hmm. us to want to live better lives. So while the hurt and the negativity is important, I would say it's even more important to show how people work through, you know, their gender identity struggles. And can thrive. And, and can totally and thrive. Can thri- and can you thrive know. through racism and can, and can thrive through their mental health and how they can get better. That's the important story to tell. The important story is not always to be showing the violence because, God damn it, we know. 
We know yes, is yeah. that is that is ingrained in our brains to be frightened mm-hmm. of the trans community. We do not need to see that being depicted over and over again. We need right. to change the stereotype. Right. Yeah, I would say while those those things can both exist, right? Like there can be a, a story about that, but for every one of those, there should be five yeah. that are just stories of of trans people existing. Can we and see so I some just wanna, trans romantic comedies? Can we see some trans absolutely like mysteries Absolutely. and thrillers with positive like that's the thing is that writers are so fucking closed-minded they can't even write for white women how the fuck are white writers supposed to create these stories like they don't understand that you can just have a trans actor play a character it doesn't right. matter you know um, we're just people and creators and artists yeah and so i'd like to kind of close this out by by noting some progress that we've made through, you know, kind of just having these open conversations about trans people and who they are um, and having them represented positively or at all in the media. Uh, I didn't cry as much as I thought I would. I was so ready to like cry through this whole movie. But when I did cry, it was Look, Caitlyn Jenner is incredibly problematic, right. and that's a whole thing that we can discuss. But her show, I Am Kate, I think is what it was called, did depict, um, have a lot of positive depictions of trans women in particular. And there was one part of the show that they highlighted in the movie uh, where a man was talking about his daughter. It was a group of oh. parents, uh, and he was basically saying how much he loves his trans daughter and that she's a unicorn she's a and unicorn, I get to live Keegan. I get to live with a unicorn and isn't that fucking Ugh. insane and amazing and, then we see and Jen, Jen Richards she's talking about how she lost her family she lost her parents she's disowned by her friends um, who won't let her come around and meet and their children and she thought that was just how it was supposed to be she had made and she seeing, had she had like accepted that as her life right yeah and seeing this made her feel like there is another way there is something else people don't have to be this way yeah and so representation is so important it's so important that jen richards got to see what a parent could be like and that other parents can watch that and figure it out for themselves you know what i mean i i think we're making progress. We're making progress. We have a long, right. long, well, long, long way to go. And that's why I Am Kate was a surprisingly really positive show because they do make the point in this documentary to say it's not about Caitlyn Jenner. Everyone's like, look, we don't agree with the politics, but the show was really about a group of trans women just living their lives. And that was such a positive thing for people to see. And Caitlyn Jenner, I know I was incredibly... Um, interested in the story as all of that was being, you know evolving in like what was it 2015 or so and couldn't watch the show because I couldn't stand her politics during the Trump era but it's nice to see that the show still had positive influences on people watching it just to see trans female friendship and life and struggles and uplifting moments and that scene made me want to at least go on YouTube and watch clips of the show, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, Keegan looks like she's about to be too ho- too hot to be in the bedroom anymore. It is so hot <laughs> in here. Like, oh my gosh, and my hair is down. You had and I'm just like the back of my neck is sweating. Yeah, it's like it was real nice and full at the start. It's gone down a little bit. You still yeah. look fabulous, but your curls have deflated <laughs> well, slightly. Thank you so much. <laughs> Keegan really does look beautiful today, you guys. I can't I can't say that enough. 
I put on lipstick because I'm like, I, I keep wanting to wear lipstick. And then I realize that anytime I leave the house to do anything, I have to have a mask on yeah. so nobody can see it. So today I was like, I'm going to wear red lipstick. <laughs> I, you know, usually my thing with makeup is that I always have to fill in my brows. I think I stayed just filling in my brows for the first two months of quarantine. I haven't had a spot of makeup on my face in over two months. Wow. Look at that. My skin's not very good because I split my chin open and I couldn't really wash my face for a while. And so I've, I'm still breaking well, out from everything. where I'm standing. Oh, thank where you. I'm standing. Thank you. Oh, everybody. I'm sure that you all have thoughts on this episode. I'm sure that you are wanting more. I hope that you're wanting more after what we discussed. So please, first and foremost, go on Netflix and watch Disclosure. Borrow your friend's so password if you don't have Netflix. Watch it. If you enjoyed listening to us, you're going to enjoy this film that much more. And then afterwards, if you have thoughts, opinions, things you want to say, things you wish we discussed, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist and follow us there as well. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and you can chat with the other listeners on the group page. Uh, you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. That is the thing that helps keep us going and you will be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday. I promise I'll post one this week. My sense of time is gone. Uh, we also have a Twitter at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F Podcast. Last but not least, if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a teeny tiny bit. All right, everybody, that is all we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage, rage on. on. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused, and you have no idea where this came from? No, she was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm, not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? <laughs>